Welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In each episode, I look at the works of great American writers using the Library of America as my source material. In this episode, we'll be continuing our look at James Fenimore Cooper's The Leatherstocking Tales, specifically uh, The Pathfinder. So I urge you to go back and listen to the previous episodes on The Pathfinder if you're just joining us. Or even better yet, to go back and listen to my earlier series on the Deerslayer and the Last of the Mohicans. The Pathfinder was the fourth of the Leatherstocking Tales to be published, uh, published in 1840, after a, a hiatus of a few years in which Fenmore, James Fenmore Cooper set aside his character of, of Leatherstocking. He first appeared in The Pioneers and then in the prequel at the uh, Last of the Mohicans, and then the final, quote-unquote, final novel of the early phase of the Leatherstocking Tales was The Prairie. He came back to the, this character a little bit later with these two novels. One, uh, The Pathfinder, set shortly after the events of The Last of the Mohicans, and then The Deerslayer, which would have been the true prequel of all the novels set even before Last of the Mohicans, about, I think, 15 years or so before that novel when... Uh, the character would have only been in his late teens, early 20s. So, um, where are we in this story? Well, the op story opens with the meeting of two parties of guides. Um, and one party was made up of Pathfinder Chingachgook and his comrade, a, a freshwater sailor who's much trusted by Pathfinder, Jasper Western or just referred to often as freshwater or Odoose. Now, Pathfinder, this is, of course, Natty Bumpo. This is Hawkeye. This is Deerslayer. This is the same character, but it's a different name in every one of uh, these stories. So this group eventually meets up with Mabel Dunham, a young woman, her uncle Cap, uh, a sailor, from a, a saltwater sailor, and two Tuscarora, Tuscarora guides, Arrowhead and his wife, Dew of June. They travel to Fort Oswego on Lake Ontario, but are ambushed by Iroquois. They narrowly escape due to the bravery of Jasper, Chingachgook, and Pathfinder. After arriving at the fort, at Fort Oswego in Lake Ontario, they learn from Mabel's father, Sergeant Dunham. Well, we learn that Mabel's father, Sergeant Dunham, wants Pathfinder to marry Mabel, and that's one of the reasons he brought her to this, uh, at the time, uh, very backwater frontier area. This is all set in like the 17, late 1750s. Sometime at Last Mohicans was 1757, so this is maybe 1758 or 59. But he's probably set up this, basically set him this marriage between Pathfinder and his daughter. He very much respects Pathfinder, finds him to be a virtuous and honorable and, and person and a good potential spouse for his daughter. However, Mabel has other suitors. Jasper Western is falling in love with Mabel and she is casting her eyes at him as well. And the fort commander, Duncan, thinks that the quartermaster, a Scottish man named Muir, is a better candidate. Now, the reason for this is a little bit vague. Muir's been married three times before. 
it seems it's more about Scottish loyalty than anything else that is leading him to support Muir. So there's basically these three suitors here. Now, after a shooting contest, which is won by Jasper, but this is only because Pathfinder threw the final contest, the party sets out for the Thousand Islands, which is right, it's in Lake Ontario, but right at where the St. Lawrence um, River feeds into the lake. And that's where they want to go. They want to relieve a camp of British soldiers and then help them disrupt the French supplies. So if you look geographically, the French are sending in down supplies from Quebec into the Great Lakes to fight in the war. This is still during the French and Indian War. Yet with, you know, you can kind of hide out in the hundred thousand islands because there's so many different islands and it's, you know, kind of an easy place to kind of do raiding operations. So the point is just to kind of raid French supplies. So that's the main plot we have. Um, so with that, let's look into the next six chapters of the Pathfinder, the next 100 pages or so. Uh, we'll be starting with chapter 13, if you're reading along. So the detachment is to travel in kind of a lake-going ship called, called the Scud. It's basically a, kind of a, a, a cutter vessel. It, it's not that big, but it's pretty substantial for... Um, a lake going ship that's a lot bigger than like the canoes that that uh leather stocking usually uses pathfinder usually uses so the people on this voyage are jasper western um, he's commanding the the ship you got pathfinder chingachgook are along basically as warriors and guides and people who can you know provide kind of military force cap and Mabel are going along too. Now that's sort of presented as a way of just because they're kind of bored in the garrison, but also because Dunham, who's kind of commanding the expedition, the sergeant, he wants Mabel and Pathfinder to get together. So he wants them kind of on the same expedition. Um, so that's that's the the heart of, of the expedition. Now, the most important event in chapter 13 in fact, I'm going to say right off the bat, not much happens in this part of the novel, really from chapter 13 to chapter 18. Essentially nothing happens. And this is one of the criticisms that Mark Twain leveled at particularly these novels, Pathfinder and Deerslayer, is that you have huge chunks of text where nothing really happens. And the plot's not really advanced. And that's certainly true of this section. So this may not be a very long episode. I think there's some interesting things going on here, but by and large, it's... Um, it, th these chapters don't really get us anywhere. Even though eight, chapter 18, which is really dramatic um, and important for our character, even that doesn't really accomplish anything. As, as meaningful as that chapter is, as a reading experience, plot-wise, it doesn't do much. So anyways, the main point in this chapter 13, back to 13, is this realization that Jasper Western might be a French spy. Um, now, there's been tensions between Jasper and Cap up to this point, but largely over kind of you know what's better freshwater sailing or saltwater sailing and it's it's kind of crude and it's you know a little bit of dick measuring going on among these two characters um but here where we really get the, the the suggestion that maybe he's a french spy and he's actually working for the enemy and the reason why well they get this letter that's unsigned and pathfinder immediately disregards an unsigned letter as dishonorable um but Basically, the evidence is that we got this letter. He speaks French, and he has these connections to Canada. He, he kind of grew up near Canada, and he learned a lot of skills from being around Canadians and being around French. Um, so this is 
it, the evidence for this is really this letter. Now, Pathfinder is central to the defense of, of Jasper Western. As always, you, you see again and again Pathfinder sticking up for Jasper Western. This is going to be important foreshadowing for later events. And here's what Pathfinder says. He says, I dare say Jasper may have some Canada notions about working his craft from being so much on the other side, but catching an idea or a word is in treachery and bad faith. I sometimes get an idea from the Mingos himself, but my heart has always been with the Delaware. No, no, Jasper is true, and the king might trust him with his crown, just as he would trust his own eldest son, who, as he is to wear it one day, ought to be the last man wishing to steal it. Now, Cap doesn't believe him he's early to jump on board this idea that jasper is a traitor he doesn't really like him because he's a freshwater sailor and also what and this is something pathfinder was just alluding to is the suggestion that because he sort of sails like a frenchman he has french tactics that this is a suggestion that he's actually basically a french plant a french mole now, despite speaking up on jasper's behalf suspicions do run wild throughout the group even so even cap has his doubts now, in this chapter, Cooper spends a moment or two stroking the patriotism of his readers by mentioning George Washington, who actually had fought in the French and Indian War. I don't know how well known George Washington was among soldiers in there, but he's mentioned um, here. And actually, Jasper's skill is compared to George Washington, who's presented as really a, a valiant and, and great warrior. It's just a cameo mention of the then young officer, but I think it's, it's mostly here too basically work up the patriotism of of the readers so chapter 14 it's mostly more chatting um the journey into the thousand islands there's a few side plots that are referenced here the most important might be the ongoing tension between cap and jasper over freshwater or seawater sailing but then mostly the brewing romance between jasper and mabel is worked on in this chapter Jasper directly brings up the potential that she might marry Muir, the quartermaster, the Scottish quartermaster, and Mabel quickly rejects it. In fact, many characters mention this possibility to her, so it seems to be in the air that maybe she's going to marry this man, Muir. But Muir's been married three times before, and she always says, like, I'm never going to marry this guy. So he's never a very serious suitor. But he, he he's, the image is that maybe, you know, he's he's her future. But by talking about the potential of marriage and marrying an officer, Jasper is kind of working in this idea that maybe she would marry someone like me. Now, Mabel is starting to really feel the male gaze more and more. So she's the only woman on the ship. Three men have direct intention to marry her. So I wonder how comfortable it is. I think Cooper's not fully sensitive to how a woman might have felt in such a situation. But uh, here's what he writes. Her feminine instincts had indeed told her that she was an object of admiration with the quartermaster, though she hardly supposed the extent that Jasper believed that she, too, had even gathered from the discourse of her father that he thought seriously of having her disposed of in marriage. But, by no process of reasoning, could she have ever arrived at the inference that Lieutenant Muir was to be the man. She did not believe it now, though she was far from suspecting the truth. Indeed, it was her opinion that these casual remarks of her father, which had struck her, had proceeded from a general wish to have her unsettled, rather than from any desire to see her united to any particular individual. That's kind of the closest we get to Cooper talking about how Mabel may have felt with all these, these men kind of grabby-grabby at her um, on the ship. Of course, no one's actually doing that but there's gaze there's a male gaze surrounding her by all these men 
Now, at the end of this chapter, they run into a canoe carrying Arrowhead and Dew of June. Now, this is an, this is another this event is another example of how Cooper, you know, really accomplishes nothing here. And he wastes basically a chapter and a half on Arrowhead and Dew of June. Or maybe about a chapter in length, a little bit of chapter 14 and about half of 15. But the end result is we're exactly where we were in respect to these characters, you know, back in chapter six. But um, chapter 15, so what happens with this? Well, you get a nice, a kind of an interesting conversation where Arrowhead is trying to justify what happened. And he and Pathfinder says, well, that makes sense. And, you know, understanding Indian cultures and Indian ways, you know, Arrowhead's excuses sort of make sense. What happened is during the battle, he fled. And this led to suggestions that he was working for the Iroquois. And Chingachgook basically says as much because he overheard the Iroquois talking about this. His basic excuse, though, for fleeing was simply that Du of June was captured by the Iroquois and that Arrowhead had to follow them and to secure her. And then he also explains how he got the canoe they were on and other things. And it all sort of makes sense to Pathfinder. He, nevertheless, they are basically captured, um, not trusted. But they escape. And here's here's where we, the criticism, I think, of Cooper might have some merit. They almost immediately escape into a canoe they get a head start that allows them to catch up and they're they're lost to the party. The only thing this does is lead to the arrest and confinement of Jasper Western as a French spy. But again, I think there was enough you could have gotten that point without having to have this aside with Arrowhead and Two of June. Maybe Cooper just wants to remind us that these characters are alive and part of the story. That might be. Um, Cooper's not the most, I guess, efficient writer, obviously, and he's not the one who's, who cares about wasting a page here and there. But nevertheless, this is where we end up. They get away, and they get enough of a head start that there's no way they can catch them. So Cap turns to his brother-in-law, Sergeant Dunham, and says that Jasper's to blame, that he should be arrested. He, the command of the ship should be taken away from him. And the skill, the command of the scud then should be given to the most experienced sailor left, which would be none other than, than Cap. Sergeant Dunham agrees with this, and Cap takes over the ship. Now, what follows the arrest of Jasper is a bit of a farce. Cap is confident that he can navigate the lake, which to his mind, his arrogant mind, is just no more than a pond, right? I sail the seas, pond, like Lake Ontario, that's no big deal for me. Yet he gets lost very quickly. Yet he won't admit that he's lost out of pride, and he talks about how a commander can't admit fault. Now, maybe this is true to a point. I don't really know leadership theory on these things. Um, I tend to be one who admits my faults when I make them. But, quote, in, an admission of ignorance on the part of a commander would destroy discipline. No matter, brother, I understand your shake of the head, but nothing capsizes discipline so much as to confess ignorance. I once knew a master of a vessel who went a week on the wrong course rather than allow he had made known he allowed known he had made a mistake and it was surprising how much he rose in the opinion of his people just because they could not understand him and Dunham says well that's you know that may make sense at sea it doesn't make sense on freshwater and this is given a few times and I don't know really enough of the mechanics of freshwater sailing versus seawater sailing to know how much of this is just Cooper making it up but there's a lot of things that work at sea that apparently don't work on the lakes and this is this is one of them uh, that commanders need to be a little bit more reflective, and and you you can't waste a week 
sailing in the wrong direction when you're on lakes. I guess that's the point. Dunham scolds his brother for his recklessness and basically says, I need to release Jasper, but Cap will have none of this. And so at the end of the chapter, Jasper is still in jail and the ship is essentially lost. So chapter 16, it's, it's been a while in the story since our parties had any real danger. Really, chapter six was the last time we've seen that. So we've been a, like a third of the novel, essentially, where there hasn't been any real danger. So Cooper gives us a taste of it here. There's going to be a lot of danger in the final two parts of this series. But here, you know, it's just Cooper's just teasing us with how dangerous it still is in this area. Like the way he reminded us that Arrowhead's there, he reminds us that the French are here too. So Cap continues to get the scud lost, and then a storm arrives. It's, it's actually really funny, given the bravado that Cap announced his superiority or the superiority of saltwater sailors, but he is hopelessly lost. They're pushed off course all the way to Niagara, which is really the opposite end of the lake if you look at a map of, of, of Lake Ontario. So Oswego is where they started. They were trying to go east to the Thousand Islands, and they actually ended up about this equidistance to the west of Niagara. And the French are here, and there's a ship called the Montcalm. And this is a reminder that Montcalm was a character in The Last of the Mohicans, the commander of the French troops, and important enough that he had a ship named after him. Finally, there, there's growing consensus that Jasper must be released in order to save the Scud, especially with the storm coming up and Cap really not knowing what to do and getting them lost in the bargain. Um, now, Jasper does give his advice, which is to basically anchor the ship during the storm. Cap protests that you can't anchor a ship during a storm because that's not what you would do at sea. And again, we get the deep differences between sailing on, on sea and sailing on the inland seas of the Great Lakes. Jasper's advice, though, is ultimately ignored due to Cap's protestations. So, chapter 17. As this chapter opens, Jasper and Mabel are just chit-chatting, and Mabel's trying to defend Jasper's honor, his trustworthiness, make him feel good about his situation, you know, basically being in, in the brig. Uh, and she says, you know, don't feel too bad about it. I trust you, and all that. And this will blow over. Now, eventually, though, Dunham is forced to go down to Jasper and give him command of the ship, because no one else really knows what to do. He's the only one who knows how to save the ship. And so he's redeemed, not because he's proven to be um, not a French agent, but because they just need him. He's, they're desperate for help. And so he basically anchors and locates an undertow, which allows the scud to hold out and ride out the storm. I, I, it's a rather technical conversation about the nature of sea currents and lake or lake currents, I mean, and undertows and how they contrast with the ocean. And there's a bluff involved. And. Yeah, yeah, I really can't comment too much on that. And I don't know if anyone's really interested in all those technical details. I'm sure there are people in the world who could say more about this. We do see Cooper applying, I assume, applying some of his knowledge he learned about sailing in this chapter. And he has a bit of fun with it. But again, I have to you know point out that all of this is a distraction from the main plot. We have spent basically four chapters to get where we started. Jasper's in command of the ship. Mabel still has three suitors. The ship is heading back towards Thousand Islands, right? Cap still doesn't trust freshwater sailors. Jasper's still mistrusted as a, possibly a French agent. Nothing has really happened here. Um, but And that's actually true of Chapter 18, too, even though Chapter 18 is great. It's, it's one of the centerpieces of the, of the chapter, in fact, of the whole Leatherstocking Tales. Uh, this, is, this is one of those chapters I'd point to 
as evidence of why I don't understand why the Pathfinder doesn't get a little bit more love. Um, there's a few novels I've looked at in the series which I don't understand why they're not more widely read or widely appreciated. This is one of them. I think another would be like Marty, um, Herman Neville's Marty. But I, I you know, it's much like the greatness of Last of the Mohicans is that great villain, I think, and, and the, the action and kind of the weirdness of it at the end with the bear suits and the conjurer and, and all that kind of stuff. But this story just feels a lot more real to me. It feels more grounded and there's both have emotion, but the emotion here is maybe because it's it's Pathfinder's arc that's the center of the story in some ways. It, it feels more meaningful to me. But really, it comes through in chapter 18. So basically, the Scud has survived the storm. And Jasper's back in command, and he's starting to head east, back to the original plan to get to the Thousand Islands to go back on their mission. Now, Mabel and Pathfinder go to shore for a while on the excuse that Mabel is a little bit seasick or just, you know, she wants to, sick, she wants to be on land for a bit. The real reason is that Pathfinder really, really wants to to have alone time with Mabel in order to propose to her or to work on their relationship. And this is something that Sergeant Dunham fully supports and wants to see happen. And that's the heart of this chapter. It's just a long discussion between Mabel and Pathfinder about marriage. He never quite comes out and says, will you marry me? But he essentially proposes to her in this in this chapter. He does it in a really awkward way. He, I mean, Natty Bumpo, as far as we know, has never had a you know never been with a woman he never courted anyone he was certainly never married before um i doubt you know he's probably a virgin right so th there's no evidence that he had relations with with women in the other stories we've read i mean he's such a jesus-like figure in a lot of ways he's he's at least that's cooper presents him that you wouldn't expect him to have done that uh, had relations with women outside of marriage he's just too honorable for that so he's not a person who has a lot of experience with with women and that comes off in this chapter um quite nicely but we get this proposal so enjoy it for what it is pathfinder talks to her about the forest as this temple once again it's uh something that we've seen several times so i won't reread it but Path, uh, Pathfinder, this character keeps going back to this again and again in book after book that he experiences God through through nature. She asks him about marriage and and basically asks if you'll ever settle. So um, what do we get here? Um, quote, this is Mabel. Have you ever bethought you seeking a wife to share your fortunes, Pathfinder? To me, it seems you only want a home to return to from your wanderings, to render your life completely happy. Were I a man, it would be my delight to roam through the forest at will or to sail over this beautiful land. And then he says, I understand you, Mabel, and God bless you for thinking of the welfare of man as humble as we are. We have our pleasures, it is true, as well as our gifts, but we might be happier. Yes, I do think we might be happier. And then she replies, happier? In what way, Pathfinder? In this pure air with these cool and shaded forests to wander through, this lovely lake to gaze at and sail upon with clear consciences and abundance for all real wants, men ought to be nothing less than as perfectly happy as their infirmities will allow. End quote. You know, so she's suggesting like the only thing you're missing is, is maybe a wife and a home to go back to. But you, you see why he likes her so much is that she really understands something about him in a way other characters other female characters we met didn't so much like um, 
what was her name again in in the deer in the deer slayer judith judith hutter or you know there's really no that she was kind of a potential marriageable partner for deer slayer in that novel but it doesn't go anywhere and cora and alice certainly don't have this but so mabel seems to appreciate something about pathfinder's uh, way of life so she suggests that maybe he should marry an Indian woman because that's more fit to his lifestyle. And then he rejects this saying that basically kind must cling to kind. And that this is, again, a catchphrase almost of, of Pathfinders, that every people have their gifts. Kind, got to stick to kind, that he'd have to marry a white woman if he was was to marry at all. And then we've, they finally get to it and the suggestion that his father, her father wants her to marry. And they got some more back and forth. And then he... He eventually gets to the point of making the proposal and it, it takes a while for him to do it. And again, he never quite comes out and asks. Um, let me see if I can find where he gets the closest to actually asking her to, to, to marry. Okay, I found it. So he says, you know, your father wants you to marry. And she says, I mean, Pathfinder that you have talked of this match more to oblige my father than anything else, that your feelings are no way cons concerned. Let my answer be what it may. So what she says there is, okay, maybe you guys were talking about marriage, but obviously you don't want to marry me. She, her immediate response is, you're so old, right? And I'm so young and, and we come from different worlds. So she says, ah, we're, you know, kind of, we'll just, that's just what my dad wants. It's not really what you want. And then he replies, Quote, I've often thought myself happy, Mabel, when ranging the woods on a successful hunt, breathing the pure air of the hills and filled with rigor, vigor and health. But I now feel that it's all been idleness and vanity compared with the delight it would give me to know that you thought better of me than you think of most others. And that's pretty much the closest he gets to a straight up uh, marriage proposal. There's a bit more back and forth where they, they, they hint at it. But eventually she figures out what's up and she just outright rejects him and she talks they talk about other suitors including Muir and she rejects any idea of marrying Muir so that's off the table now surprisingly Pathfinder actually cries he sort of gets the sniffles or like a tear in his eye and I think this is the first time or maybe the only time I, I haven't read all of the pioneers or or even started the prayer yet so I don't know if he cries there but so far this is really the one moment where he cries he's been sad at other points like I think most Dominantly, uh, the best example of that would be in the Deer Slayer after he's basically abandoned by Hurry Harry and he's he's thinks he's going to die soon and he has to come to terms with that. But, you know, this is the one time you actually have tears in his eyes. Now, Mabel starts crying, too. Um, but we learn that Pathfinder really seems to love Mabel. And that's he's emo he's not just doing this because of the way Mabel suggests it's just to humor her father that he actually does have these feelings for her. Mabel begins crying, knowing that she respects Pathfinder greatly, but cannot really see her marrying him. The sergeant then arrives, so Mabel goes off, and then the sergeant arrives to find out what happened, and Pathfinder basically announces he's a failure. Dunham sort of scolds him for being kind of an idiot, awkward around girls, and says, well, maybe it'll just take more time, right? You can't just jump out and say, will you marry me, which he doesn't do, but he was so awkward and weird about it that Dunham sort of scolds him and says you need to work on it a bit more. But he does reassure his friend that Mabel will not marry the quartermaster. 
So that does it for the third 100 pages of the Pathfinder. Um, much of this section is wasted on a side adventure. So what purpose does it have? Well, I guess it spills, fills space. It creates this tension over Jasper and his loyalties. Now, even the proposal scene, as great as it is, doesn't really get us anywhere, as we'll need to go through this entire conversation a little bit later in the novel. So that if this is like all these issues, is Jasper a traitor? Who is the traitor? Who is Mabel going to marry? All this has to be done again. So nothing is really resolved at this point. In fact, we're pretty much where we, we started um, six chapters ago. So thematically, I don't think there's that much here that's new. Uh, you know, certainly this idea of kind, marrying kind or clinging to kind, something that Pathfinder brings up a lot. I think the really uh, the heart of this, though, is this question of of Jasper's betrayal, the failure of Cap as a commander uh, on a late going ship. And then really the emotional experience of Pathfinder real, realizing that he's not going to be able to. Uh, marry the woman he loves or it'll be very difficult so um, things will pick up in part four uh, the plot kind of makes up for lost time in part four um, the, as the party reaches the thousand islands and enemies are revealed and uh, we have real the stakes rise quite a lot in the last part so as always, thank you so much for listening to my thoughts on these works of American writers. If you have comments of your own, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. And then we'll be back with part four of The Pathfinder in the next episode. Let Christian men take heart today The devil's rule is done Let no man heed the devil more For Jesus Christ has come But hear ye all what angels sing How Mary made for Jesus King